And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Power Hour, a weekly show hosted by me, Nicole Auerbach, and I am joined today by The Athletic's Brendan Marks for a special basketball edition. We have these shows once a week through the Final Four. We are getting very close to the Final Four. So as a reminder, if you want our last couple of basketball shows as well as college football content, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on the Andy Staples Show and Friends feed. Of course, Andy and Ari are up to their usual antics this offseason, but there's lots of news and you'll want to stay tuned throughout that offseason. On today's episode of Power Hour Basketball Edition, we will break down everything you need to know in college hoops in an hour or less. So, Brendan, let's dive in. And hello. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so you have seen three of the final four teams. So we're going to get into that in a second. But first, before we start, who are the three? So the three that I have seen, and I think it's it's kind of cool because I've seen them at different points in the season, is I've seen UConn, and I saw them back in Portland for the PK-85 tournament. Then I saw Miami several times during the course of the regular season and the ACC tournament, uh, and then was in Orlando to see both of San Diego State's first two games, their wins against Charleston and Furman. So it's cool to have seen them all at different points in the season, um, which definitely impacts the way I view them, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and we'll get into that in a second, but um, I'm sure when you saw all three teams, you immediately thought, yes, these are for sure locks to go to the Final Four. So I'm assuming that your bracket is actually Perfect. Um, we'll get that into a second. We'll, we'll start the show as we always do with the Power Five. Uh, in in college, in our college hoop shows, we're doing it as five topics for news and notes across the sport. So number one is obviously that the Final Four is set. So it's going to be Florida Atlantic against San Diego State, UConn versus Miami. We have a four seed. We have a five seed, a five seed, and a nine seed. Everyone's brackets were already busted basically an hour into day two of the tournament. You had a 13, a 15, and a 16 win in the opening round. So things have been chaotic for a while. But, Brendan, like, how unlikely is this final four of the tournament? Like, that these are the four teams that we ended up with in Houston. Yeah, you know, I think most people when they're picking their brackets, as long as you're not doing them for mascots, which I totally endorse, by the way, uh, but you're usually trying to pick one or two of these sorts of teams, you know, a four seed, a five seed that could be frisky, that could make a run, that could see an advantageous matchup. And to get all of them, it, it's just sort of bewildering. Like, you know, you look at some of the the all-time wildest Final Fours, and these teams are certainly good enough to be there, but just in terms of the brand recognition, uh, you know, it's the second time ever that we've had, you know, three first-time participants, um, which I think is awesome, but it, it just truly is sort of unbelievable. If you had, if at the beginning of the year, anybody had bet these four teams, um, they either would have been hospitalized or they'd be like holding some public office right now. So yeah, I love it. I'm all for it. 
one of the best parts is, was you mentioned, like, if you filled out a bracket based on mascots, you actually might have FAU there because Owlsy is an elite mascot, I would just say. Like, they did some sort of graphic, CBS did, with the Final Four teams, and they put either, like, a coach or someone, like, in a space helmet because of NASA and Houston and all that, and it was Owlsy? Yeah, you're, you're nodding along. You've seen this graphic. It is terrifying. <laughs> they put Owlsy in a space like an astronaut helmet. Um, incredible, incredible. But um, it's also the first Final Four since like seeding began without a one, two, or three seed. It feels right because I feel like the narrative throughout the regular season was who do we trust? Who is actually good? It was like a revolving door at number one. I mean, you covered North Carolina. They started the preseason at number one, which is kind of crazy to think back to because they obviously didn't even make the tournament. We'll get into that a little bit later in the show. But it was a year where we weren't sure who was actually good. I, I do think by the end, we thought Alabama was good. You thought Houston was good. like We did think that way about a few teams. But it does feel kind of fitting that it was such a strange year with like record numbers of teams that even got to number one in the AP poll and you land here with a four, five, five, nine final four. For sure. And I, I agree with you that by the end of, you know, the regular season and conference tournaments, we did have some sort of idea like, OK, Alabama is clearly a pretty good basketball team. Houston, same deal. Um, but even earlier in the year, I mean, you know, you mentioned North Carolina. North Carolina, a team that did not make the tournament, took Alabama to four overtimes and largely shut down the national freshman of the year, Brandon Miller. Um, you know, back at the beginning of the year, we thought Gonzaga was great. Then we thought Gonzaga couldn't guard anybody. Then Gonzaga was great again. Um, you know, Purdue and Zach Eady were going to go undefeated, and then the freshman guards were freshman guards. So, you know, we, we had like waves of storylines where teams would rise and fall and rise and fall. And I do think it's kind of cool, actually, that, in one of those teams, like UConn is sort of the embodiment of that. You know, if you had to narrow it down to one team in this final four, um, you know, I remember over the first month of the season, I, I was lucky enough to have seen like UConn and Alabama and Michigan state and Iowa state and Carolina and Duke and Purdue. I had seen all these teams live and, and I thought UConn could be as good as any of them. And then January happens and you know, they like me took the first couple of weeks of the new year off and had to get back to what they were doing best. So I, 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 you know, the idea that we have this final four is crazy. It is completely in line with this season. We constantly had turnover. And I think the best part is we still have that going to the final four. Nobody knows who is going to win. It's like a lot of people have been saying, and I, and I feel like everyone's very hesitant to say it, but like it's UConn's trophy to lose because they are going to be the overwhelming favorite here. But then everyone's like, well, we've thought that there were favorites at different points in this tournament, and it, it, it that doesn't really mean anything. You really don't know. And all of the teams, I think you can make this case for all four teams, were underseeded when the bracket came out. You could definitely make that case for FAU, and I remember a lot of uproar on Selection Sunday night about them being a nine seed, also drawing a hot Memphis team as their eight, but... It's very interesting because if you go by the way the committee does this stuff, of course they were going to be like in the 8-9 range. If you did it based on other metrics and how they play and how they look, they probably could have been like a 6. I mean, this is part of the problem with all of this. But you could have argued, at least with each team I think that's there, that they could have been one seed line higher to start. And and again, they've all had incredible wins. So, so Brandon, let's talk about the, the three that you've seen. Let's go reverse order. So San Diego State, and you wrote about their defense and how they do this. But they love to make a game ugly. They're very comfortable in that. And they're very, very tough. So 
A, what do you know about their defense? And B, how did they do this? How did they get to their first Final Four? Yeah, so the defense at San Diego State, you know, in some ways, this is a lifetime achievement award for this program. You know, so so Steve Fisher comes to San Diego State, uh, obviously is famous for what he did at Michigan, winning the national titles, the interim head coach, recruiting the Fab Five, going to two more titles, um, coming up short in both. But but still, like the resume speaks for itself. And he inherits a San Diego State program that basically has no identity, had a losing season in 13 of the previous 14 years. And he says, OK, you know what? I'm going to do what I did at Michigan. I'm going to really drill down on defense. And he did that. And and in year three, he had taken a program that had four wins when he inherited it, had taken it back to the tournament. Um, and so that has really been the bedrock of San Diego State's success the last 17, 18, 19 years, uh, you know, really going back to the late 90s. And so this year's version specifically, I think there are two things that make it special, unique things that are enabling them to have the success they've had. One is that they're gigantic. Uh, they've got like five or six guys who are all between six foot six and six foot 10. And they all are asked to do the same things defensively. So they will guard point guards. They will guard centers. They will protect at the rim. They're on the perimeter. They they do not distinguish. You know, they have a six ten shot blocker and Nathan Mensa who will guard point guards. And that is a really scary thing. If you're Florida Atlantic uh, on the flip side of things, they also have experience. These are guys who have all come in together. These are guys who are, are largely transfers. Uh, you know, half of their rotation came via the transfer portal. Were not recruited originally by San Diego State, but they have bought into this mentality together. They've grown together. A lot of them have been together for multiple years. And and the one thing that I just personally think is kind of cool is that there are four holdovers from that 2020 team that did not get the opportunity to potentially have been the best San Diego state team in history. So the fact that those guys are getting their shot now, even delayed, I, I think is a pretty special thing. Yeah. And that was a team that people were talking about for the final four and, and is one of the best teams in the country that year. Um, so that is a very cool f- full circle moment for, for some of those players. Let's, let's talk. Well, let's stay on the matchup. Cause I know you said FAU is not one of the teams that you've seen in person this year. But like, how do you see this game going? Is is San Diego State going to be able to control it? Is it going to be a game in the 50s where someone will struggle to reach 60 points like we just saw against Creighton? Or will FAU be able to play the way that they want to, which is very enjoyable to watch, especially compared to like a rock fight that is a San Diego State game? So like, how do you see this game? Where do you see it's going to be one? Like, how do you see these two teams match up? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, not that it's going to be the exact same game plan, but I do think that San Diego State is going to borrow key components of what it did against Alabama and incorporate them into this game. So, you know, Alabama was top 10 in the country in terms of the percentage of their shots that came from the three-point line. Uh, Florida Atlantic is in the top 35. They might be number 35 overall right now. So it's a similar formula where they are getting so much production from deep. San Diego State on the flip side has the number two three-point defense in the country. And again, a lot of that is predicated on what I was just talking about. They've got five or six guys who are all gigantic, who can all switch, and, you know, they are going to make your life miserable. So... The trick is, if you are San Diego State, can you control the tempo like you did throughout the Alabama game, like you did in the second half of the Creighton game, or is it going to be a little bit more like what we saw in the first half of the Creighton game, where Creighton was still able to get the looks that it wanted, where Creighton was still, obviously Florida Atlantic doesn't have an interior presence like Creighton did. Um, the, The thing that I do think could give San Diego State trouble, and this is one of the reasons we love Florida Atlantic, is because the Owls can score. 
they can just score. And, and I do think that, you know, for Creighton, especially when you're talking about Nebhard, you know, getting hurt, um, you know, shots stop falling. There are so many different ways that, that Florida Atlantic can score from the perimeter. So I do think it's going to be, end up being lower scoring. That defense is legit. Um, but Florida Atlantic, just as I would have said with Creighton does have a capable enough offense to win this game, but I'm not expecting it to get into the seventies. It's also going to depend on how it gets officiated, which is always an interesting question with, with the San Diego state and the Tennessees. And it's been a narrative this, this postseason for sure. Let, let's flip over to the other game and let's start with Miami. You cover Duke and North Carolina. You cover, you know, all these ACC teams, you watch a lot of ACC basketball. So I loved that Jim Laranega reached the final four, punched the ticket to the day, 17 years after he did the same thing with George Mason. It's like, you can't write these things. This is why sports is the greatest reality show that exists because you can't script these things. He has been one of the most underrated coaches for a long time because I just don't think people think about him when you talk about the great minds and the great coaches. But what he has done at Miami has not been done. I mean, this is their first final four. I remember a couple of years back when they first got up to like number one in the country and everybody, including myself, we all made trips down to Coral Gables and wrote about how they did it. And so much of it was Larinaga himself and his staff and the way that he recruits, the way that he connects with players and all of those pieces. You have Isaiah Wong, you have some dudes on this roster too, but are you surprised that Miami got here? Or were you saying, looking at like elite eight runs they just had last year and saying, okay, well, I actually do think they had the pieces to, to be capable of this. So the way that I would describe the Miami that I saw for most of this year was offensively, were they good enough to be in this position in the final four? A hundred percent. I had no doubt. Um, you know, that is an example of Laranega's coaching greatness. He understands where the game is going. It's a very modern offense. They have four floor spacers, uh, Norchad Omier. He's, he's an undersized big in the middle, but he's got a crazy motor. He plays great in their pick and roll game. Like it's beautiful. Defensively, the narrative with Miami was, are these dudes capable of not coasting? Because in what was the ACC this year, Miami could afford to coast a lot in the second half of games because their offense was, was so overpowering. And when there were those few defensive chances for them to step up and to get stops, they didn't always get them. And so offensively, you're thinking, okay, yes, you've got Isaiah Wong. He's the ACC player of the year. I voted him for ACC player of the year. I think he's one of the most underrated players in the country. Uh, Nigel Pat comes in. You know, people who want to focus on the NL stuff, that's cool. You do you. I'm going to focus on him being a really, really good shooter and basketball player. Um, Jordan Miller, Sam Vecini, and I talk about this guy all the time. Like, no team in the country would not have a Jordan Miller on their team. You know, he's a six, seven, do everything forward. Um, so, so they have all these pieces, and defensively, what they've done is, is they haven't panicked. And I do think that you're seeing the benefits of last year's Elite Eight run really come to fruition with a lot of these guys. And, you know, Jordan Miller is probably the, the shining example of that. Plays the perfect game. And what's the first thing he says afterwards? I wanted to get past the Elite Eight. And so, yep. um, you know, I, I think Miami's always had the offense to do it. I think Larinaga's, you know, I think he's probably one of the best program builders in college basketball history you know, for what he's been able to do at two separate stops. And um, I just think it's really cool, like you said, to the date, I mean, you couldn't have scripted that any better. In your, I think you're totally right. Uh, especially, you know, George Mason, one of the all-time great Cinderella runs in the sports history. Plus, then taking another program that had never been to a Final Four, didn't have that type of tradition. And establishing them not just as like a tournament mainstay, but they've been a Sweet 16. 
elite eight caliber program here for, for a while now. Um, and again, like they haven't dropped off and he's, he's also had, you know, assistants go on to become head coaches or assistants that have been with him a really long time. He basically brought the George Mason guys with him to Miami. I mean, there's just so many interesting tentacles to all of this. And our, our buddy CJ Moore had a great story about them clinching this final four birth and how he apparently did not know queen like had never heard we are the champions until 2018 right and like i can believe that and then i also can't believe that at the same time like that is a that is an incredible statistic and fact about jim laranega i'm never going to be someone to question cj's reporting really i'm, I'm not <laughs> going to do that i'm just saying that it seems highly unlikely and listen i've seen those laranega locker room dance cameras there's no way we are the champions <laughs> has never made an appearance so. well and the, he said that he had literally never heard it until he watched the ball bohemian rhapsody movie like what to be fair I, I also spam that playlist after watching that movie but uh i at least had some idea beforehand i just I, think it's we crazy. play every time i won a big game in like third grade we played we are the champions i mean come on jim laranaga come on you've heard that before okay but let's let's he, that's why people love him though that is jim laranaga <laughs> like to a t also another like peel back the curtain on him so Again, that year that they went up to number one for the first time, and there were a lot of firsts. I forget what year it was, like 2015. I went down to Coral Gables, and like, you know, you you set up all these visits with the coaches, and sometimes you sit at their desk. Sometimes, you know, you sit in. They usually have like a couple couches or whatever in their office. Sometimes it's like over lunch. He laid down on the couch. He basically did the interview lounging kind of like a shrink, like a therapist's office, but also kind of just lounging like you would watch TV. So that is... Jim Laranega, just for our listeners to understand. Let's talk about the team that they are playing. You mentioned this. UConn was a team early in the year that people thought could be a title contender. So what changed when they started losing? And then why do people think, especially based on the seating here and the way teams have been playing and they've been steamrolling everyone, but why do we think that this is their national championship to lose? I think it's a couple of reasons, you know, number one, it's the balance. You know, when we're talking about these other teams, we're talking about one or the other, just naturally. We're talking about Miami's offense. We're talking about Florida Atlantic's offense. We're talking about San Diego State's defense. UConn can do both. And I think that in terms of the four teams that are left, they probably have the highest ceiling on both sides of the court. So, so certainly that is one advantage. I think there's a, I, I, think it's a very real, if not the only argument that you can make that UConn has the best front court left in the tournament. You know, you're talking about Adama Sanogo is a guy who uh, should not be having near triple doubles in the elite eight. And that's what he's doing. And that's a really scary proposition. Uh, and then, Oh wait, hold on. They bring a seven foot two Donovan Klingon off the bench who, who just might be like an NBA first round pick next year. So that's cool. That's fun. Um, nice job, Dan Hurley. So uh, you have those two things. And then the last thing is, as has been the case with both of the last two UConn championship runs, you needed a guard to go nuclear. And it was Kemba, and then it was Shabazz, and now it's Hawkins. The dude cannot miss. He has played himself, as our Sam Vecini just had in his you know recent mock draft, he's played himself into first-round lottery territory. He is one of the best marksmen in the country, and not just that, but he is so clutch. He's so reliable. He's so consistent. Um, does it at a high volume with efficiency? Like those are the types of guys that you need. So you put their front court with this elite shot maker, with a coach who I think you know, as as Brendan Quid, and that's a story that if you haven't read, go 
Go read Brendan Quinn on Dan Hurley. Stop listening to us. Go read that story right now. Well, we'll come back after. Come back, Just come back after. But, <laughs> but but it is a, a team that has totally bought into the culture that he has instilled there. And so, you know, for all of those reasons, I think that's why UConn is looked at as the favorite. Um, in my opinion, they should be the favorite. I think they are on paper the best team left. The good news is these games aren't played on paper. And the point that you made about the guards is an incredibly valid one. And I think people think about that when you're picking upsets, when you're looking for teams to ride this time of year. But those are UConn's last two national championships. And both cases, that was not the team that anyone thought was the best team in the country this year. It was a team that got hot at the end of the year and had great guard play in the tournament. And that got them six wins when they needed them. So they're always like kind of the poster children of when you talk about this tournament and the fact that it doesn't always crown one of the best teams in the country, they're the poster child for that. So this year, like you could probably make that case, but that is part of the formula about actually winning this thing. And especially for UConn when they win this thing on the men's side. Okay. Let's switch gears to number two. We talked a little bit about Miami, talked a little bit about their underseeding, the way that they played, the way that they got through the ACC. A narrative that is populating, that has popped up here over the last week, and Jim Phillips, the ACC commissioner, has fed into this as well, is that the ACC has been disrespected these last years because they've only had five bids for the last two seasons, which is very low for for this league. This is a very proud basketball-rich traditional league. 15 members, only five bids. Last year, three teams in the Elite Eight. This year, they have a team in the Final Four. The Big Ten does not. The SEC does not. So let me just read a couple of quotes from Jim Phillips. He spoke to our pal Andrew Adelson over at ESPN over the weekend. He said that they're going to meet in the offseason with coaches and athletic directors to be more proactive and aggressive on changing the narrative surrounding the conference. We have to portray ourselves in a different way, and maybe it's our scheduling, maybe it's providing information back to the committee, but we're going to be aggressive on how we look at it because but we're all, and we're going to be aggressive on how we look at it. We feel like the narrative hasn't quite been right the last two years. We're going to try to do something about that in the off season. And he said, at the end of the day, what do you do when you get the opportunity? I'm very proud of how we've done in the ACC. This is one of those debates about inclusion, like the right picks and the right seating versus then the tournament starts. And, you know, you have North Carolina and Duke do what they did last year, get to a final four. And then it changes the way you think about, okay, the rest of the season, like these non-conference losses or mediocre teams in the league play. So my first question to you, Brendan, because there's a lot of different angles to this, is do you think that tournament success uh, should overshadow or erase issues in the non-conference or the regular season or the perceptions that people have built of leagues? Does, Does a run in the tournament like this change the way you think about the ACC season? It, it doesn't. Um, it really doesn't. And I am embarrassed at how much ACC basketball I watched this season, um, both for work and for pleasure, uh, pleasure in quotation marks. But the ACC did not have a terrific season this year. As a whole, the ACC had some really, really disgustingly bad teams. I hope that none of our listeners watched the entirety of a Louisville basketball game this year. No disrespect to, to Kenny Payne or Nolan Smith or any of the guys there. It was bad ball. 
Josh Pastner is no longer coaching at Georgia Tech because of what happened in Atlanta this year. Uh, there were some really bad bottom of the ACC level teams that by and large did weigh the conference down. But that's something that we also saw last year in the ACC. And, and the difference this year was last year, you also had one of those teams in the UConn Houston blend of this year. That was a front runner the entire way. It was Duke and coach K's last year. The ACC also did not have that this year because despite Virginia starting out hot in the non-conference, that, that was the peak for these Cavaliers. That was as good as Virginia was all year. It was in November, and they got steadily and steadily worse through injuries, through inconsistency, through offensive woes, whatever it may be. And really, if you go and you look at it, the best team in the ACC all year long, the one team that was constantly ranked 10 to 15, sometimes dropped back to 16, 17, it was Miami. And it was because they have this offense. It was because they have these experienced guys, but – the fact that one team goes and does this, I, I, I think, can can be a credit to the ACC and that it did prepare Miami. Isaiah Wong said so after the game. He said, listen, we've been prepared for this. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, in the ACC, there are a bunch of different coaches that play different styles. I think that is the case, you know, sort of across these leagues. You get you get some that are maybe a little more uniform. You know, the Big Ten is physical. They're going to knock the crap out of each other. In the ACC, you're going to see some different things. You were going to see the zone when you went to Syracuse. You're going to see the press when you played NC State. You're going to see Duke switch everything. Like, it was going to be different no matter where you went. And I do think there are benefits to that. But at the same time, it does not excuse the overall lackluster play that we saw from the conference this season. And so that's sort of where I fall on it. I think both of them have value. But one Miami run does not suddenly mean that all of the ACC basketball I watched was better than it was. It also, when you think about like what North Carolina did last year and the fact that like they're up and down season, they could, they could blow people out. They could get blown out all that stuff. Like that ended up spilling into this season because that was more of who they were over the course of four months. Then you get hot in the tournament, right? So it sometimes masks issues that actually need to be addressed and dealt with. And I feel like the ACC needs to look at the scheduling piece for real because Jim Phillips can be upset about Clemson not getting in but anyone who does bracketology told you the five reasons why they were not going to be in on selection Sunday and it reminds me Brendan of like when the SEC decided it was going to be good at men's basketball it was not going to just be Kentucky and Florida it has to be a league-wide scheduling effort because you can't schedule teams that are really really low in RPI or now net that are going to drag down your resumes across the board because everyone's going to play each other and that they might do it even just by playing the game, even if you beat them. Right. So it's, it's, it's strategic in like, okay, we need to figure out who is projected to win these low major mid major leagues. Those are the teams you schedule. You don't just schedule anybody in those conferences. What else, what else are things that like need to be collectively decided or looked at for the whole league to, to step it up so that when you're playing teams, in February, you actually have resume opportunities instead of like just games you can't lose. You know, like that that really is what happens when you only have five teams make the tournament is that you have a bunch of teams that don't have these opportunities to boost their own resumes late because they're not playing those top teams. Yeah, you know, so I, I think it is the scheduling and I think it's actually two components of it. You know, I think one, I 100 percent agree with you that you cannot be scheduling as Clemson did this year, as NC State had done in past years you cannot consistently be scheduling these sub 300 level opponents and expecting that they're going to carry any water for you come February time. 
you know, for, for example, North Carolina in the ACC tournament is desperately trying to accrue quadrant one wins to get, you know, its resume in, in tournament contention. If North Carolina had beaten Virginia, it didn't. But if it had, that would have helped. But then North Carolina would have played Clemson in the ACC tournament semifinals, and that game would not have moved the needle for the Tar Heels. And so that is the situation the ACC has to avoid, is having teams in consequential conference semifinal games that, frankly, at the end of the day, just do not matter. One way that I think you can do that, in addition to just that league-wide mandate like what you're talking about, Nicole, where the SEC is saying, look, this is, this is going to be an everybody thing, is I do think you sort of look at the, the quantity. You know, right now, there are fewer opportunities for ACC teams because they're playing 20 league games to go out and to, to search for some of these. And so, you know, in speaking to coaches, athletic directors, et cetera, that is a common refrain that you have heard from the ACC on the ACC side of things right now is if we could reduce our conference schedule, then A, it's probably cutting off some of those gross games that don't do us any good that are, you know, they are just traps because if you lose them, as Clemson did this year with Louisville, it dooms you, but if you win, it doesn't do you any good. It, it reduces those games, but it also does give you the opportunity, like you're saying, to schedule some more of those competitive mid-majors, some of those, you know, to, to participate in more MTEs. Um, and that's really where the league has fallen short. And so I, I think that scheduling and the different components of it are the, the biggest piece of the equation. And just as a, a footnote there, that's what the WCC did. When Gonzaga had an opportunity to go to the Mountain West a few years back, they changed the way that they did the revenue distribution so that Gonzaga got to keep more of their money for the deep runs, like the further they went. And then they also cut off two conference games so that Gonzaga can go play harder schedules and other teams could play games they could win. You know, it just, it, it, it helps everyone. And so I do think that's a really interesting um, angle, idea, thing to ask Jim Phillips about this offseason, about how do you approach that. It's also a league that since Jim has gotten there has talked a lot about enhancing the football product and that rubbed people the wrong way who believe it's a basketball league. So there's just like a lot of, a lot of different tentacles to that conversation. And so we'll continue to, to track on that. Brendan, I'm sure we'll continue to write about it all off season as well. Uh, number three, everyone is looking at this final four, seeing all of these Cinderella's and non-traditional blue bloods and three first time participants and saying, Man, this could be the lowest ever ratings for a Final Four. First of all, Brendan, I've talked about this because people do like ask about it. But should people care? Should fans care about the ratings of these games? You shouldn't care. And if you do care, if your first reaction to seeing three first time Final Four participants was, man, those ratings aren't going to be very good. You are a nerd. I'm sorry. I love you, but you're a nerd. It's just the way it is. <laughs> these these are tremendous. Like, okay. All right, I don't want to get too diatribe. The reason Go for it. the reason I love college basketball is because fairly Dickinson can beat Purdue. It's because Florida Atlantic can be an underseeded nine and can just roll through all of these bigger name programs, can get past one of the hottest players in the country in Marquise Noel, and can deserve its spot in the Final Four. It can introduce itself like that and. Florida Atlantic has a real chance to win the national title. Jim Laranega, who a couple of years ago barely had enough players because he had so many injuries that he couldn't field a team, now has a team that's been to back-to-back -back Elite Eight and, again, has a chance to win the national title. That is the beauty of college basketball. 
is that parity. And now with the advent of NIL and the transfer portal, that parity has even, it, it has leveled out so much more. Anybody can be anybody. There are so few great teams as we saw this year. And, and it's not that way in other sports. It isn't. If you want to see the best of the best beat up on each other, I, I can totally understand that. The college football playoff does great for a reason. But personally, I love the parody and the storylines, the spontaneity, the wackiness of the NCAA tournament and college basketball in general. And anybody who's more worried about the ratings than they are about the magic of that, in my opinion, is probably not watching the right sport. Also, maybe this would matter if you worked for CBS or were an executive of a media company. But for fans, it doesn't. And, and like, I think I do agree that typically the best tournaments that we think about are ones where there were early upsets. And then, yeah, maybe like last year's, it was an all blue blood final four. And you're like, oh man, I can't wait for these games. And maybe casual fans care about that because they know the history of these programs or they, they've decided they either love or hate Duke. Like there, there is a, an emotional reaction. But with this tournament and the fact that it may be one of the all-time great tournaments because you had a 13, you had a 15, you had a 16, you had a 15 in the Sweet 16, you have a nine-seed mid-major in the Final Four, all, all these other reasons we have outlined. But I think people are invested in these teams. You have gotten to know them. This is part of the reason, like, by the time a team gets to the Final Four, I think even casual fans or people who don't watch college basketball all year – you have favorite players and coaches and you've gotten to know these people. And so I get that the ratings might be low. That is not a reflection on the teams involved at all and or the quality of this tournament. And we have been fortunate enough to have some thrillers. Some of them have involved blue blood programs. Like I was at K-State, Kentucky. That was one of the best games of the first weekend. But some of them haven't. And it's like K-State and FAU. That was a great game. Really enjoyable game, right? Like, that wasn't a game that anyone... Duke was supposed to be at the Garden. Kentucky was supposed to be at the Garden. Like, it, it didn't matter because these games were compelling. And so I'm with you in that I don't know why that's everyone's knee-jerk reaction to these things, except that people's brains are broken and people see stuff on social media. And I, I get that some fans especially in the realignment climate are worried about like the value of their team being part of something, but that's not going to be, that's not going to come from like a final four rating. That's like when you look at over the course of a season, the viewership and your conference viewership, like it's, it's not this type of thing. So I understand that there's some anxiety because people are worried about realignment, but that's not what this is. And so enjoy the games. Hopefully they live up to the last couple of weekends. Because I didn't think that the Sweet 16 at Late 8 would live up to the first weekend, and then it did. We had just such amazing games. So hopefully we get that. Also, number four in the Power Five, if you want to watch something that's going to have record ratings, go watch the Women's Final Four. Go watch the Women's Final Four. Well, actually, you should watch it anyway. And we've talked about women's basketball on, on Power Hour, and I'll be at the Women's Final Four for Sirius XM, so I'll be tweeting about it. But you have... Caitlin Clark, who is fresh off a 40-point triple-double. No one's ever done that, men or women, in the NCAA tournament. Against Aaliyah Boston, last year's National Player of the Year winner, in an undefeated South Carolina team. Like This is the dream matchup. This is going to set a bunch of records for women's basketball viewership on Friday as a national semifinal. And then the other matchup is LSU Kim Mulkey. Second year, she gets the 
LSU Tigers to the final four. And then Virginia Tech, who's never been there. And they're an awesome story too. Liz Kitley was ACC player of the year. Um, Kenny Brooks seems incredibly likable. Like it is a great final four on that side. Even if South Carolina wins it all, as we all think that they probably will have a perfect season, back-to-back national titles. The odds that there are going to be two compelling games are going to be very, very high. And the fact that you're going to have the two best players in college basketball in Caitlin Clark and Aaliyah Boston on the same court that we actually got this matchup is awesome. So if you are concerned about ratings or if you would just like to watch good games, because the women's tournament has just been phenomenal as well as the men, the both of them in tandem have been great. You should watch the women's final four. You should watch Final Four. I, I already know that I have a reservation uh, at a local sports bar on Friday night. I will be watching um, those games. I, I need those games. In my, I, I, the idea that we get this South Carolina team in all of its monolithic dominance versus this like singular, like not singular superstar, but like what Caitlin Clark is doing is, is insane. Like these are not ordinary human basketball achievements like a 40 point triple double to go to the final four is absurd like i i cannot emphasize enough how absurd that is that is not so <laughs> that is not a winning formula like uh and so yeah these games are going to be incredible and and also you know here's the thing for all of the chaos that we've seen on both sides the men's side and the women's side i mean uconn's you know, street getting snapped uh of all the consecutive final four 14 um 14 yeah, which is also absurd. Who's to say that there isn't one more massive upset? You know, this South Carolina team has sort of been preordained, but like if there's anybody who's going to take them down, it, it's Caitlin Clark. And, you know, on the other side too, you know, can't, you know, I did a preseason story on Virginia Tech's women's team, Liz Kitley, uh, Georgia Amore, Kenny, you're right about Kenny Brooks. He's incredibly, incredibly nice and likable. Um, for them, again, it's a first time thing. And you have the ACC player of the year and you have this group that rolled it back and, uh, you know, a, sort of against like the newness of, of Kim Mulkey act too. Uh, I just think that's also a very compelling storyline. So I'm, I'm into it. I know I'll be watching those games. And if, again, if you didn't already plan to, you should certainly schedule that into your Friday night plans. I, I do hope that um, some of the other coaches maybe wear like feather boas or something because you, you know, like someone's got to match Kim Mulkey step first step here somewhere she's had some ridiculous outfits this tournament so far <laughs> um so yes do watch that we are th- th- we're flipping the order now so the women are going to be friday sunday men are saturday monday loaded weekend of college hoops before we let you go brendan uh number five i wanted to hit on north carolina because you are our foremost expert on the tar heels they started the season preseason number one. They don't make the NCAA tournament. And now we're seeing a lot of roster movement and including Caleb love announcing that he's transferring out. I know you're going to have a story about this on the athletic. So as, as people are listening to this, it may be already posted and you can go read this at the athletic, but Brendan, what happened and where does North Carolina go from here? Yeah. Uh, what happened is a lot. I, I, you know, one last peek behind the curtain, you know, I asked that exact question to Leaky Black, who is North Carolina's most tenured player this year. He had played in more UNC games than any player in program history. And I asked him that. I, you know, last guy in the locker room, Leaky, what what went wrong this year? And it was almost like movie style. He sighs, leans back in his seat, looks up, and goes, 
man, it was a lot. And, and, you know, <laughs> it, 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 I still see it like replaying in my head. Right. Um, it's like the trailer for your article. It's like, it's just this image. I, I should have recorded it, honestly. And <laughs> the thing, the, the thing is basically it comes down to, you know, I, I put it into four buckets. So number one is the actual basketball. They were not a great basketball team. This was a team that finished as the second worst, uh, second worst three-point shooting team in program history, but more importantly, had the fewest assists of any North Carolina team ever. They did not have ball movement. They did not pass. It was very stagnant. It was very not pleasant to watch. Uh, but that sort of plays into the second part, which is that that is a reflection of some beneath the surface chemistry issues that there were um, that, you know, you can see visibly on the court, but also there are questions about who is the leader of this team. You know, I, I was a firm believer in this, you know, for, for most of the season, if you asked every player in the North Carolina locker room, who's the best guy on this team, I bet you get five different answers. And that is not usually conducive to a winning formula. So, so that's another part of it. A third part of it, frankly, is you do have a second year head coach and, you know, Hubert Davis is an incredibly nice guy. You've dealt with him. I've dealt with him. Like, you know, he, he is genuinely one of the nicest people in sports that I have been able to interact with, but he's also a second year head coach who's still learning on the job and learning to do that with the spotlight totally trained on you as the number one team in the nation is a lot to do. And I do think that there were a couple of missteps from him this year. You know, I think some of his messaging was off. He said, you know, last year people fell in love with North Carolina because they had this iron five, you know, the starters played every minute. And he said, we got tired, you know, over the summer, I want to play more guys. And he played the bench even less than he did the previous season. So some problems there. And then the last thing is this, and this is the one that I think so many fans don't, don't think about is the psychological aspect of being a college athlete. North Carolina, before that preseason run last year, had gotten blown out in the NCAA tournament for the first time in the first round in Roy Williams' career. Oh, and then he retires. You had been had the had the tournament not been canceled by COVID the previous year. North Carolina was not going to make it. That was the worst year of Roy Williams' career. The previous two years before that, they were top two seeds, but got blown out by 17 plus points both times in the Sweet 16 or earlier. And so there wasn't really this like praise for North Carolina that they had been accustomed to in 2016 and 17 when they're in back-to-back -back title games. These players were accustomed to bad press. And finally, they got a taste this summer of what good press was like. And be it because they didn't want to listen or because they were not told enough or were not properly prepared, depends who you ask, but they believed everything that was said about them. And that positivity can be intoxicating. And then especially when things don't show up on the court, it takes a sharp turn. So that that is sort of like the Cliff Notes version of it, but it really is, as Leaky Black said, movie trailer cut, it was a lot. <laughs> so were you surprised, and I'm guessing the answer is no, about Caleb Love transferring? I was not surprised. I was not surprised. He is the sixth player to enter the portal. Um, UNC had two other guys, you know, exhaust their eligibility. So that's eight guys off of this year's team. You know, the first preseason number one to miss the tournament altogether since the field expanded in 85 who are going to be gone. And to some extent, it's kind of what needed to happen. You need a clean slate after something like that. And also for Hubert Davis, these are players that he largely inherited from Roy Williams. 
he got to do some tinkering around the fringes, brought in Brady Manick, who was a stud, you know, brought in Pete Nance, who was valuable, but had an up and down season. And now he really gets to remake the roster in his own image with guys he wants. They can play how they want to play. He can do it all. And he deserves that opportunity because he's the head coach in North Carolina. And just because he's the head coach at any team, he deserves to have the roster he wants. But it is also a process that's going to be much more heavily scrutinized because of this year. So I was not surprised to see Caleb go. I think, you know, clearly some of his inefficiencies on the court were reasons that North Carolina didn't hit its potential this year. Um, and now I'll be fascinated to see where he goes, because if you're a North Carolina fan and Caleb Love goes to Missouri or Memphis or Alabama of all places uh, and he balls out, all of a sudden that makes the situation just a little bit more interesting, too. So. Uh, there, there's a lot to it, but I, I was not surprised that, that Caleb is going to be somewhere else. And just to put a bow on on all of that, I mean, this is also a team that decided not to play in the NIT, and you can see why. I mean, everyone was ready to turn the page on the season or get out of town, and that's why I didn't fault them for doing that because sometimes there's just certain teams in certain seasons where you're just you're done, and, and you just don't want to play anymore together. <laughs> and I think it was very apparent that that's one of the things that happened with North Carolina. So go read Brendan's stories about this um, and coverage all throughout the off season. He's the best. And before we let you go though, Brendan, we always do a last call. And the idea is that it's whatever you might do at last calls, the bar is closing. So you get another round of drinks and you're going to cheers to something one last time, or you need to get something off your chest one last time. Um, do you have one in mind or you want me to go first? I've got one in mind. I'm ready to go. All right. All right. Last just, call. Floor is yours. Just like somebody who's had a few and it's last call at the bar. I'm, I'm cheers into the good old times. I'm cheers into the best NCAA tournament game I got to cover this year. And for all the great ones we've had, this one is forgotten. I still think it's the only true legitimate like buzzer beater. Furman over Virginia getting the Paladins their first NCAA tournament win almost 50 years those that that was as energized a locker room as I've been in in years. It was so much fun to cover, and it, it just really reminded me personally what the magic of this tournament is. And I know that you got to cover it a little bit for, for a little bit longer than I got to, Nicole, uh, and did great work doing so, especially in Kansas State. If you haven't already, please go read her Marquise Noel feature. Um, but I just think that 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 game was awesome. And in all of the these upsets, Miami, San Diego State, whatever, let's not forget the Paladins, who got the whole thing kicked off with the first upset of this thing. They did. We were all Paladins for a couple of hours until <laughs> a bigger seed pulled off a bigger upset. Um, that, that goes well perfectly with what I wanted to cheers to. Uh, my last call goes to the teams that get to the Elite Eight. Because it's such a great accomplishment, and it lasts for like 24 hours. And then the teams that go to the final four get a whole week long celebration. They get to go to the host city for the final four. And it's part of what you were talking about. Was it Jordan Miller who was talking about the elite eight and losing in that round yeah. for Miami? It is such a painful round to lose in because you're so, so close. And you can put up banners for elite eight appearances. You can put a year on the, on whatever you hang in your, your arena, but Man, you are just so close. So my cheers is to the Elite Eight participants who were this close to Final Four runs that that achieved so much this season but will be viewed as coming up short if you're a Gonzaga, for example. Um, but like K-State and the magic that they captured and their, their New York City guys getting to do what they did at the Garden, 
they lose in a really good game to a compelling story and a team that we all enjoy watching in FAU. But it's such a blip. You barely get to celebrate making the Elite Eight because you got to play that game. And I just want to make sure that all those teams that get to the Elite Eight in both tournaments get their due because we don't always write those off-day features. We don't always talk about them in the same way, but they get to put that they were in the Elite Eight. It's just the worst round to lose in. Although, I mean, I guess Purdue, if you ask Purdue or like Virginia, they would probably say the first round is the worst round to lose in. I, I think for these teams that have gone on runs losing the Elite Eight, that is painful. There were some painful ways that teams lost, but I do want to shout out all of those teams uh, because they were this close. This I point. agree. I, I don't know if that's more of a cheers or a pour one out um, for the Elite Eight homies, but I, I totally agree. And yeah, on both sides. I mean, I, I think that I hadn't even thought about how quickly the glory sort of goes away. You almost don't get to enjoy it at all because it's straight on to the next game and then then it's sadness. So that's a great one. That's a great so, one. So again, let's just name them all. Creighton, Texas. Where are the rest? Gonzaga and, and Kansas State. Cheers. We'll have one for you. I, I think the Creighton fans and, and Creighton program is still just devastated, especially about like, you know, you have a controversial foul call at the end, which was a foul and should have been called. But right. like, I, I think that that was just also such a painful way for that season to end for them. So they're probably drinking with us. We are drinking with you as well. So close yet so far uh, from Houston. So that is my last call, but I do mean it as a positive. Those four teams were a joy to watch. We enjoyed them this season. They gave us some great games. Um, and we just, we just, it's a blip. You blink and they're gone. And so just wanted to make sure we give them a shout out, but please go enjoy the final four. It's going to be a blast. Who cares if TV viewership is, is, is high. Who cares if other random people are watching this game, you go watch, you go enjoy, uh, Brendan, thank you so much for making time and, and making us all smarter. We really appreciate it. And, uh, and, and, Enjoy the off season. Hey, listen, I got one more weekend. Everybody, you know, forget the nerds. Enjoy the basketball. We got three games left. It's going to be beautiful. Uh, go March Madness. Forget the nerds. That'll do it for Power Hour <laughs> this week. We'll have one more basketball edition next week. Wrapping things up, putting a bow on Houston. Uh, and also Dallas. The two Final Fours are actually very close to each other this year. Um, but thank you for listening for Brendan Marks. I'm Nicole Auerbach and, uh, this is power hour. I'll see you next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 